with how much stuff they've accumulated. And we've seen that both good enough and get enough are false value systems. They're completely fraudulent, and buying into them will lead only to waste, wasting your life. This morning, uh, we're headed to Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to address topic three in Genesis 11, grow enough, grow enough. I know that as people grow, sometimes they develop uh, allergies to different things. Yeah, when I was a kid, uh, I was probably six or seven years old. My mom was out mowing the lawn, and she got stung by a bee, and my dad was at home, and she, I didn't know, she was allergic. I didn't even know what allergic was. I just knew that all of a sudden, her whole body, like, turned red, and she couldn't breathe, and, uh, you know, the, we, this was before cell phones, and so I yelled at the neighbor, and he came over, and they figured everything out, and I've never been allergic to bees, uh, you know, uh, but that did like scar me for life. Uh, every time I saw one, until I was like 20 years old, I ran. Um, and, uh, and still to this day, I run a little bit. Uh, a couple weeks ago, right before I, I went to India, uh, I was out trimming bushes and I got stung twice, like right together. And one was in my hand. And by the time I got on the plane the next day, my hand was like a club. It was like this big, you know. And, uh, and so I took a picture and showed, uh, sent it to my wife. I said, what happened? Um, and, and then a couple of days ago, I got stung here uh, in my arm. And uh, all of a sudden, my left arm, like a couple hours later, it looked like I had Popeye's arm on my left arm. My right arm looked like, well, my arm, basically. So, uh, so I know that as we grow, sometimes we develop uh, these allergies or we get rid of allergies. Uh, some of you uh, maybe developed a, a nut allergy or a shell allergy. I remember my grandmother, she didn't develop a nut allergy until she was over 80 years old. And then all of a sudden, we're at this family picnic, and she's eating something with nuts in it, and she got, like, you know, hitch lips. <laughs> um, you remember? When, and, and it, it was just, it was crazy. But anyway, uh, so grow enough is the thing we're talking about today. And it's the third fable in the religion of enough. If I could just be educated enough, admired enough, quoted enough, then I'll be enough. If I can have enough power or enough status or enough recognition, then I'll be enough. And we're going to see today one of the first instances of grow enough in human history. And the passage uh, we'll read uncovers the events surrounding the Tower of Babel. And if you've never heard this before, pay close attention. Genesis chapter 11, and I'm just going to read four verses this morning. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Babel is the first recorded instance of man-made religion. It was organized to go around God, to circumvent God's purposes for humanity. 
And if we could go into the history and the likely participants of, of Babel, uh, we could talk about Nimrod, uh, son of Cush, son of Ham, son of Noah, and talk about his ties with all pagan religions that have developed since the time of Noah's flood. Uh, but instead of going deep into genealogies and personalities, we're going to look today at the four demands that were made at Babel. The four things that the leaders of Babel demanded. And we're going to talk about the philosophies that took place at this event 4,400 years ago. They still lurk around. They're in every man-made belief system on earth still today. It's amazing that in only one verse, Genesis 11, verse number 4, we're going to find all four philosophies in one verse for growing up. And so these four things exemplify the religion of enough. So look at this first this statement they made. They said, let us build a city and a tower. And so first, this is about our culture. Okay, this is about our culture. The notes are on your bulletin if you want to follow along. And so this first part is our culture. If it's our city and it's our tower, then we get to make the rules. Right? Have you ever played a game with somebody who changes the rules all the time? Yeah. Now, it wouldn't be you, right? I've got this uncle named Uncle Tom. And everybody knew since we were kids, you don't play games with Uncle Tom because Uncle Tom always changes the rules in the middle of the game if he's behind. And even he, he'll wait till the end of the game and change the rules to change the outcome. So it's like, oh, today we were trying to get the least money in Monopoly. Like, what? Monopoly? You, gotta, you know, it doesn't even make sense. But uh, so, so you probably have one of those people in your family too. Hopefully you're not that person uh, how many of you have somebody that you would recognize in your family that's got to win at all costs? Okay, how many of them may be sitting next to you? They, okay, so they change the rules. They've got to change the culture. It's, uh, it's our city. It's our tower. We make the rules. Well, the leaders of Babel, they wanted absolutely no outside accountability for their self-designed culture. And, and so let's consider this. How is it? that no matter where you go on earth, people instinctively know that something is either right or wrong, right? You go into the jungles uh, in Africa, you go into the Pantanal in South America, you go into the forests of New Guinea, wherever you go, people know there's something, either, it's either right or wrong. In order for that to be the case, for all societies to have morality baked into their conscience, there has to be an objective standard that is beyond the human race. It has to be independent of our control. You can't have law without a lawgiver. Paul told the Romans in Romans 2 that the work of the law is written on the human heart. Well, who put it there? How do we have universal moral law? There's only one way. We have a universal moral lawgiver and his name is God. But at Babel, they said, we want to define for ourselves what our values are going to be. Yeah, this has been happening in societies around the globe ever since. Now, by the way, it's still happening around us today. The religion of enough is alive and well in modern day America 
even in our society. Uh, and you, you see this all the time. This is our society. We get to make the rules for it. There's no God. There's no outside accountability. There's no history. There's just us and what we want for ourselves. As one guy put it in 2008, we are the change we have been waiting for. Now, I'm telling you all of this because if we aren't careful, these same philosophies creep into our personal lives, into our homes, into our churches, and we start to feel like we get to define our own values and we get to develop our own culture. And then it's a rude awakening when we come to church and we hear God's word proclaimed boldly and clearly. Uh, did you know the phrase, thus saith the Lord, is used over 400 times in the English Bible? That's a lot. God has already laid out the institutions for humanity. We don't have any reason or ability to tinker with them. God's already laid out the boundaries for human culture. And anytime we go against his wonderful plans for us, we're sabotaging our own happiness. We're also on very dangerous ground. And so they first planned for this Babel culture. But then I want you to notice this next phrase in Genesis 11:4. They said, listen, let's build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Now many people think that they... Uh, tried to build a tower that would go all the way up to heaven, right? You remember that? Maybe you're in Sunday school and there's this picture of this never-ending tower, right? Have you ever played uh, Jenga? Have you ever played Jenga? Uh, or have you ever tried to build something with anything? Lincoln Logs, Legos, whatever, right? <clears throat> We're going to build a tower that goes all the way up. Now, when you read these words in the Hebrew Scriptures... There is another indication here, and it means that the top of their tower was going to be their definition of heaven. So they were going to build a tower whose top was going to be heaven. Now, the tower they built was called a, what's called a ziggurat. It's a rectangular tower that has another rectangle on it, and then another one, and then another one. And each step gets closer uh, to their god, little g god. Finally, at the top was the deity of Babel. So first we saw it's our culture. Now we're going to see it's our deity. Okay, so this is built into this second philosophy, our deity. Now we get to design a shrine for the deity that we have invented. And if we do that, this is going to insulate us from acknowledging and being responsible to the real creator. We all know that Satan was always behind the scenes influencing the leaders of Babel to use religion to keep people away from the truth. If people could be trained to think that their deity lived in the top of the tower, then they wouldn't consider that there was something else out there far above their puny, uh, their puny tower deity. And, and so uh, this has happened all through human history. And in fact... Uh, you guys have heard of the wise king Solomon? Remember the wise king Solomon? Well, Solomon had a, a son named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was not so wise. Uh, Rehoboam actually 
stunk at wisdom, right? He liked to put it just clearly. He was really bad at wisdom. And so he became king when he was a pretty young man. And uh, he called all these counselors in, all these older guys, and said, hey, what do you guys think I should do? And the older guy's like, you know what? Your dad was wise, but he was a taskmaster. Like, he laid it on strong and heavy. And if you be nice to the people and make partnerships with us, we'll serve you forever. And then he went across. He got the young guys who he'd grown up with. He said, what do you guys think I should do? They're like, your dad, he, he should be like just milk toast compared to you. You got to come down strong on these people. You got to be mean to them. You got to rule with a rod of iron. Well, instead of listening to the wise advice of the old guys, he listened to the horrible advice of the young guys. And very quickly, he split the kingdom. Now, he didn't just split it like 50-50, uh, right? Uh, there were 12 tribes. Guess how many tribes went with him? One. Right? That's not a good split. Right? By the way, if, if you're playing uh, any game and you have a split and you lose 11 out of 12 shares, you're in trouble. All right, so, so the guy who became king in the north, his name was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Nebat, okay? Well, the way I always remember his name, uh, Nancy Kerrigan. You guys remember Nancy Kerrigan? All right, Tanya Hardy, Nancy Kerrigan, Nebat. Um, she's out of the Olympics, okay. Um, if, not, if you don't know it, Google it, it's, it's, you'll find it. Um, so Jeremiah, son of Nebat, he becomes king in the north. And uh, here's the first thing he figures out. We've got this huge problem. The temple is in Jerusalem. The temple is in Judah. That's the tribe Rehoboam controls. If the people in the north go down to worship at the temple, they may abandon me. They may become disloyal. They may go down for the feast and never come back home. And so Jeroboam invented his own religion. He made his own temple. He made his own gods. He had his own priests. He had his own worshipers. He had everything that the deity in the south had, except it was all counterfeit. All of it. Every part of it was fake. Now, this is what they were going to do in Babel. They said, listen, we're going to invent our own deity. We're going to invent all the things that go with worship, but it's not going to be for the creator. It's going to be for the deity we have invented. Religion was going to lead people to eternal destruction. By the way, religion is the number one tool of the enemy for sending people to hell. I wish I could take every one of you to places in the world like India where you drive around every morning, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and you hear in every village people coming out, headed to places of Hindu worship to offer vegetables and fruits and silver and gold to false deities. And they do it their entire lives, and then they die without Jesus Christ. Worship is the number one tool for sending people to a Christless hell. When Paul addressed this paganism in Romans 1, he said that the pagan system changed the glory of the incorruptible God 
into an image made like the corruptible man. And even below that, they started making birds into gods. And then they made four-footed beasts into gods, cows and monkeys. And then creeping things became gods. Then Paul goes on to say this in Romans 1. So powerful. He said, they changed the truth of God into a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. The deity for humanism is man. We are the change we've been waiting for. We're the gods that we've been searching for. We're the ultimate end of our quest for truth. We have such a high intellect that we can proclaim ourselves as deities. And if we're deities, we get to choose who lives and who dies. Think abortion and euthanasia. But we get to choose who has to keep the rules and who doesn't. Think unequal justice under the law. And sure enough, that's the mindset that prevails in this wicked world. And this illusion comes directly from the serpent of Eden who told Eve that eating the fruit would make her a deity. She wouldn't need God anymore. She would just need herself. And so the leaders of Babel said, listen, let's go build a tower. Let's make the top into heaven. And then look what they said next. And let us make us a name. See what that says? This is powerful. Let us make us a name. There's a lot of us's in this verse, by the way. Their religion didn't seem to be about anybody but themselves. Let us make us a name. And this is the third part, our glory. Human religion is always for human glory, our glory. We've set up this society to exalt ourselves. We will honor the creation and ignore the creator. The leaders of Babel devised a system of circular self-magnification. Uh, they found a way to extend self-approval to the leadership establishment. And it said, hey, let's make up an award that sounds really important. One year, I'll give it to you, and the next year, you give it to me, and then we'll both be important. Right? And we will invent the process to proclaim our own glory. And we'll call it the Society of Fellows. And uh, I could be the Distinguished Fellow of Philosophy, and you could be the Renowned Fellow of Education. And then once we have these lofty titles, everybody's going to bow down to us. Right? And you think that this doesn't happen in our society, you haven't been around. Right? Have you ever watched the Oscars? Right? <laughs> Not in the last 25 years, probably. But uh, have you ever watched any awards show? Have you ever been to a higher education uh, seminar? <clears throat> it's all about, I'm going to slap you on the back so you can slap me on the back. <laughs> when I was a teenager, uh, I figured out that just about all award shows for, for music or movies or television or whatever was just a, a slap each other on the back opportunity. Right? We're awesome. You know why? Because we say we are. And then everybody else, you aren't awesome. You aren't part of our group. You're not awesome. Uh, your degree has a lesser status than my degree. I went to a much more acclaimed university. I belong to a much more important academy than you. I went to Harvard, right? I went to Yale, 
And that means I'm smarter than you are. And now, we see this in society, but, but as I grew up and I got in my 20s and got into church ministry, I found out that unfortunately, the self-glorification doesn't end with the secular world. It is alive and well in every church convention, in every church conference. Guys come up to you, hey, brother, do you know brother so-and-so? He's a good person to know. His church had bubba bubba people just last Sunday, and uh, he's moving up, and you should know him. <clears throat> and uh, sadly, there was just as much self-glorification, political mumbo-jumbo in churches as there was in arts or in politics. And then I read 2 Corinthians 10. You should look at it. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Hey, ton of bricks. <laughs> it said this. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. And it goes on to say this at the end of the chapter. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Yeah, I, I'm so excited and glad that I saw that because I determined a long time ago that even though I'm a sinner saved by grace, even though I got all sorts of problems, I'm not going to pursue any type of denomina uh, denominational recognition. I'm not going to be uh, seeking a, a fixture on the speaking circuit in the good old boys club or try to work myself in with college presidents so they would invite me to their chapel services. If God wanted me to do any of those things, he'd just arrange it. I just need to serve God where I was and let God take care of the rest. And I'm thankful for that truth, aren't you? Because so many people, do you know there's people who live their entire lives to compare themselves with other people? Isn't it crazy? But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If you've ever watched any of the talent shows on television, you're aware of what I'm about to say, okay? You aren't a good singer because your mama said so. <laughs> okay? I don't know if you remember, this is like 20 years ago when American Idol first came out. And they'd have in the first round these people who literally could not carry two notes in a bucket. And they'd have them come for the auditions. And, and Simon Cowell would say, who told you you could sing? My mama. She said I sing real purdy. Okay, you don't sing well because your mama said so. You don't preach well because your wife said so. Uh, and you haven't grown enough to be enough because somebody in a club said you're enough. But in Babel, that's the way it was. We, we've grown so high in intellect. We're so wise. No one has the acclaim and the degrees and the accolades that we have. And God said, this is going to smart. This is going to hurt. Here's what God said. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. What's that mean? It means that any five-year-old Sunday school kid 
who acknowledges God is smarter than these elite professors. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. I don't care how many degrees you have. If you reject the existence of God as creator, you are dumber than a rock. You say, how dare you? I am a distinguished fellow with a doctorate in philosophy from the university of blah, 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 blah. Of course you are. But here's the thing. Here's the deal. If you can walk into the kitchen and figure out that somebody made chocolate chip cookies and that there wasn't just an ingredient explosion in the kitchen, okay, if you can figure that out, but you can't figure out that the 75 trillion cells of the human body didn't come about by accidental mutations, then all the classes in the world won't help you. You have become much too smart for your own good. That's what happened in Babel. They got together regularly to remind each other how wise they had become. And God even recognized that they had passed the point of no return. They had put off all moral restraints. They were going to do whatever they imagined in their hearts. Their imaginations were only evil and God-hating. And they had this self-admiration society. It's kind of like this. Uh, let's see if I can get some helpers. Maybe Scott, help me out. And Ben, you look pretty athletic. Come on up here, help me out. And Jim Hain, our athlete right here. Come on, Jim. Come right up here. Okay. Ben, come right in here. All right. Now, we're going to have a vote. Okay. Uh, out of these three guys, uh, who do you think can jump the furthest? Right? Who do you think can jump the furthest? Right? So here we go. So you're going to cheer while I put my hand over their head. Okay, you ready? Here we go. The furthest. For the furthest. All right? Jump the furthest. <laughs> you guys are like doing a physics equation in your head or what? That ain't right. Just because you. How many right here? Yeah. Bring it for Jim. All right, now listen. Here's how most people determine if they're going to heaven. This is, this is exact. I'm going to give you a picture of Okay? You're like, I'm going to find somebody that I can jump further than, and that means I'm better. And they think they're good enough. But could I paint you a picture here? If what we're jumping is the Grand Canyon, then it doesn't matter how much further than the other guy you can jump. You see what I'm saying? Right? Because Ben, he may be able to outjump Scott, though I doubt it, because this Scott is a wily beast. And I think in the broad jump, he may take him. And I'm pretty sure you may not want to count old Jim out. Okay? Right? But if the distance is the Grand Canyon, all three of them are headed to the bottom. It doesn't matter how far they can outjump the other guy. Right? We could put Stuka up here. He can jump seven feet further than any of them. But, but here's the deal. If the distance is the Grand Canyon, it doesn't matter how you compare yourself with the other guy. It matters that the void is impossible. You can't jump that far. 
It is humanly impossible. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. You did a great job. But do you see how most people have bought into the philosophy of Babel? They're like, I'm good because he's not good. I'm good because I can jump further than her. Right? But the distance is so large. Unrighteousness is the Grand Canyon. Sin is the Grand Canyon. None of us can jump over it. We need a bridge. And the only bridge available is Jesus Christ. And so at Babel, they said, listen, it's our culture. Okay? We're going to build the tower. We get to make the rules. It's our culture. Up at the top of the tower, our deity. We're going to put our deity up there. We don't need the creator God. We're going to make our own God. And we're going to do it for our own glory. Let us make us a name. It's going to be about us. Okay, don't be fooled about anything else. It's going to be about us. Everything about Babel was done for the glory of the people in Babel. Now, I want to go back to just Genesis 11 before, and we've got to see this last phrase. Okay, so let's put it all together. So they said, okay, let's build us a city and a tower, our culture. Uh, let the top be what we call heaven, our deity. Let us make us a name, our glory lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, this is about our control. Our control. We don't want anybody outside of our control. After the flood, God told Noah and his sons, you can read this in Genesis 9, uh, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And sure enough, they were spreading all over the known world until Babel. The people born after the flood found this plain in Shinar and decided that they would build Babel. They were one language, one speech. And they said, we have to build this tower and have our own deity and live for our own glory. Because if we don't, we're going to lose control. By the way, if nobody has ever told you this, control is an illusion. It is. So many people, they have to have control. Right? They down to every part of their life, they have to have control. Control is an illusion. It can be grasped from your hands quicker than you can imagine. They said, though, we don't want anybody to think differently than the way we've programmed them to think. The leaders of Babylon, they wanted unity and belief and purpose, which sounds great, until you realize that the unity was only possible if you agreed with their beliefs and purposes. If you wanted to worship the God of creation, that was a thought crime. That was unacceptable. If you didn't buy into the false deity, that wouldn't be allowed. It was all about control. Man-made religion is all about control, always. And if you don't believe that, then just go against the leaders of a man-made religion. Okay? Try to mess up the unity of their belief system. And I promise you that things will get rough very quickly. We live in this era that's supposedly called the era of new tolerance. And tolerance no longer means that you allow other people to 
have ideas and express them differently than you do yourself. No, the new tolerance means that you have to agree and approve of their false ideas and heathen lifestyles. And by the way, that's not tolerance at all. That's control, just like in Babel. And it's not really new at all. It's the effect or byproduct of all satanic systems. See, the enemy doesn't allow disagreement. I want you to think about the biggest difference between God and the enemy. God never forces anyone to do his will. It has to be voluntary. But the enemy is just fine with forcing people to do his bidding. And if you don't walk lockstep with the culture's latest mandates, you will be called every name in the books. And they're going to say it's about acceptance and tolerance, but it's always about control. We don't want anyone to escape our thought control. If we can get rid of all opposing thoughts, then we have full control. We have grown enough to be enough. Now, I want you to know that God was fully aware of the four demands being made in Babel. Okay, he was totally aware, completely knowledgeable of the enemy's ploys. And so God gave the human race a little nudge toward freedom of choice and freedom of thought. Okay, God didn't force anyone to follow him, but he did confound their languages. That's what happened at Babel. The human race scattered abroad into people groups. The rest is history. Uh, the next chapter says that in the days of Peleg, uh, that the earth was divided. Okay, not the soccer player from Brazil, the guy in Genesis, right? Um, the earth was divided, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of people, if you, if you ever looked at a globe, and you thought, you know what? It almost looks like a puzzle. It almost looks like it could fit together. Well, it's likely that it was together, and in these days it was divided, the languages were divided. The human race scattered abroad into people groups with the law of God written on their hearts. And uh, the rest is history. Until seven weeks after the resurrection of Jesus. See, Jesus ascended into heaven and his disciples were left with a commission to go into all the world, into every people group, into every language, and give the good news make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe Jesus' words. What had been scattered because of humanity's rejection of God would now be brought back together through the blood of the crucified Savior. Ten days after Jesus' ascension was the day of Pentecost. The disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and when Peter stood up to speak to this massive crowd, he spoke in his own language, but people from 18 other languages could understand him in their own tongue. It was a reverse babble. But Pentecost is just a precursor for the scene painted in Revelation 7, where John beheld a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and all peoples and tongues, who stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand, crying with a loud voice, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. You know, the leaders of Babel 
said we, we could grow enough to be our own gods. We could be enough on our own. But grow enough is just as much a myth as good enough and get enough. And the only way to God is through Jesus. God has been waiting patiently for the tribes scattered at Babel to willingly return to him, to follow him by choice. Let's talk about you for a second. Are you under the impression that if you just get educated enough, just move up to a high enough status, just jump farther enough than somebody else, just get ahead in this or that, that you'll be enough? My friend, it is a myth. You can never grow enough to reach heaven on your own. But God loves you. And he sent Jesus to die for your sins. And he has been waiting for you to accept his amazing grace. Next Sunday, we're going to finish the series with the topic, Grace Enough. Because Jesus is the only bridge across the canyon of our sin. He's the only way we get across. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And yet, there are people who say they believe in God who still fall into the myth of growing up. They think, if I could just get this, or if I could just get to here, then I'll be enough. But God has tried to help us all to understand none of us are good enough. None of us can get enough. None of us can grow enough. We need him. Let's bow and bring this before God today as we close.